The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing for the, the reading of God's Word this evening, we're continuing our sermon series in the book of Exodus. And this evening we take up the text of Exodus chapter 26, the whole chapter. This, of course, is a continuation of what we've been hearing uh, back in chapter 25 about the construction of the tabernacle. We've turned at this point from the construction of the furniture of the tabernacle to the construction of the actual structure of the tent of meeting itself. This is what God's Word says, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the ends, or the edges rather, the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be set opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to another with the clasp, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over the front of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the one set. Uh, the fifty loops on the, e- on the edge of the curtain that is uh, the outermost in the second set. You shall make fifty clasps of bronze and put the clasp into the loops and couple, to, uh, couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half, or rather, and the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, and the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other side shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle, on this side and on that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for the fitting together. So, uh, so shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frame for the tabernacle, uh, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 
20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top, at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form uh, the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frame of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frame, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for the holders of the bars. You shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place, and you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table, and you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework, and you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hook shall be gold, and you shall cast five uh, bases of bronze for them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Uh, Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word this evening. Father God, even as we have confessed and called on you to come and bless us here as we study this portion of your word, we ask, O Lord, that you would show us the glory of your Son even in the construction of the tabernacle. We ask it, O Lord, so that we might be built up in our most holy faith and that we might understand, Father, how much you love your people and the glory of your name. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, We've come to a portion uh, of the book of Exodus, which, which I believe is, let's say, a little more difficult to understand than some other portions of the book of Exodus. Now, it's not difficult to understand in one sense. I don't think anyone here would really want to get into a debate over the theme of Exodus chapter 26. It's pretty clear uh, what the author is trying to communicate to us. He's telling us in great and intricate detail about the plans for the tabernacle. That's not really the issue, is it? Nobody's going to dispute that. But I would imagine that this is one of those portions of Scripture which you read through, perhaps in your daily personal Bible reading, and you get to the end of the chapter and you say, well, that was all very nice, but what in the world does it have to do with me? It doesn't seem that it has really anything to do with us, does it? 
I mean, here we are on the other side of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the ceremonial law at its most ceremonial, at its most seemingly arbitrary, if, if we're honest with ourselves. We understand why it's important for the people of Israel. They need to know how to build the tabernacle. They're going to construct this tent, and then God is going to come and dwell in their midst in it. But what does it have to do with us? And that's the question that I want us to consider this evening. I think it's a legitimate question. I, though, would suggest to you that this passage actually has everything to do with us. It may not be apparent when we initially read through it and we see this long list of materials and the the curtains and all the different placement of all the different items that are going into constructing the tabernacle itself. It may not be apparent to us what the passage has to say to us as Christians living in the 21st century, but I'm going to argue tonight that it has great and profound implications for our life. You see, as we look upon the construction of the tabernacle here in Exodus 26, what we actually see is we see God seeking to instruct His people. He's seeking to instruct His people in a number of ways. In the first place, He's seeking to tell us something about Himself. We're going to see that the tabernacle points us to the glory and to the majesty of our God. It speaks to us of His royal identity as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we're not only going to see that, we're also going to see that as we begin to dig into the details of the chapter, that the tabernacle has something to communicate to us about our nature as well. You see, the tabernacle not only tells us about the glory of God, but it also tells us about the sinfulness of man. But it doesn't only say that either. You see, the tabernacle not only teaches us the glory of God, it not only teaches us the sinfulness of man, but it also begins to point us forward to the solution, which is really the solution that the entire book of Exodus is seeking to show us. The solution to the great problem of all of mankind. That sinful man is separated from glorious God. The tabernacle begins to point us forward to the solution, to the separation between these two parties. That's what I want us to see this evening. Now, as I seek to convince you of that proposition, I'm not going to do it the way I would normally do it. You know you've sat under my preaching for a while now. I'm sorry for that, but you have. And you've come to realize that typically I would seek to exegete a text verse by verse in a consecutive manner. In this case, though, I think that that would be a little bit dangerous for us. Because it would be very easy to lose the forest for the trees in this passage. Instead, what I want to do is I want to step back a little bit from the chapter and look not at the chapter in consecutive sequential order, but I want us to study this chapter the way we would read a set of blueprints. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. First, I want us to look at the materials that are necessary for the building of the tabernacle. If you were to unroll a set of blueprints, you would see, for instance, that key to understanding how to construct any structure is understanding the materials you need in the construction of that structure. So first, I want us to look at the materials used in the construction of the tabernacle. 
But then second, and maybe even more bizarre at first, uh, I want us to look at the orientation of the tabernacle. And I know you're all thinking now that I've lost my marbles, but I'm going to seek to explain why this is actually extremely important. So we're going to look at the orientation of the tabernacle. And then third, I want us to consider the design and the purpose of the tabernacle. And as we consider these various aspects of what the chapter is teaching us, I think it will become clear what the purpose of this chapter is, not only for the people of God living in that time, but, but what it communicates to us today as well. So bear with me, if you will, and let's begin to consider first the materials used in the construction of the tabernacle. Now, you heard many materials Listed in the construction of the tabernacle. Of course, we heard about various kinds of linen and of tanned ram skin. We heard of goat's hair. We heard of all kinds of fabrics. We also heard of all kinds of precious metals. You had bronze and, and silver and gold. And you might be wondering to yourself, well, what do all these have to do with me and, and how do they all connect? And if you take a step back from the chapter, and many have in commentaries and, and, and other study Bibles, things like that, and seek to visualize what the tabernacle would actually look like when all of these various elements are brought together, you begin to realize that what the chapter is doing is it's actually showing us something rather interesting. And that is this. That as you begin to understand the tabernacle, you must conceive of the tabernacle as being a layered structure. It's a layered structure. You understand it has one layer covered by another layer. And not only that, the entire tabernacle complex really has got this tiered system, if you will, of holiness. It starts, of course, in the very midst of the holy of holies, the most holy place as we hear it described here in this chapter. And that, of course, is the place where God himself dwells. And you take one step out from that and you find yourself in the holy place. You take one step out from that, you're outside of the tabernacle proper into the outer courts. There is, if you will, these concentric rings of holiness involved in the tabernacle's construction. That's important for us to understand. Because these concentric rings are not only present in the temple or the tabernacle complex itself, but they're actually present in the very structure of the tabernacle, the actual tent. Now think about what's going on in this chapter. We see, for instance, the outer layer being described for us. Think of how it's described. It's described as having contain, or of containing, for instance, uh, or being made of, rather, uh, tanned ram skins. With a, with a goat skin cover on top of that, as we see in verse 14. So you can visualize in that outer layer of the tabernacle, it's, it's tanned skins. It's a type of leather, if you will. You come in one step from that, and you find a slightly more precious type of fabric, if you will. You find goat's hair. So that's the next layer. And then when you come into the inner part of the tabernacle, you find fine twined linen. And that fine twine linen has what on it? It has cherubim worked into it. It's extremely well-crafted fabric on the very interior of the tabernacle. You see the same kind of thing taking place with the precious metals. If you think about it for a second and you take a step out and you begin to place all the pieces of these 
these various clasps and things that we see here described, the bases, the clasp, and all these things that are made out of precious metal, what you begin to see is that uh, the exterior has bronze metal. You come one step closer, for instance, the base of the tabernacle, it has silver. You come one step further inside, and what do you find? You find gold. And what is this meant to communicate? This gradation of materials, if you will. It's meant to communicate something about the person who lives in the tent. You see, this is not just some random tent. God didn't go out and say to the people of Israel, go find me the best tent that you guys live in, and and I'll just live in that. No, 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 he doesn't say that. He gives them very precise details on what they're to do. And the tent that they are to construct is no ordinary tent. It's a royal tent. It's a tent that is meant to reflect something about the person who dwells in the midst of the tent. It's meant to reflect the holiness of God. The closer you get to the presence of God in the tabernacle, the more expensive and the more precious the materials used are. We can think of that, of course, with the furniture as well. Remember from back to what Pastor Hulse talked about last Sunday. You see all the furniture in the tabernacle, it's covered in what? It's covered in gold. It's there in the midst of the tabernacle. And it's meant to reflect, literally, it's meant to give off light, but it's also meant to reflect the glory of the one who dwells in the midst of that tabernacle. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means that when God is asking his people to construct this very carefully laid out plan, this blueprint that we have before us, he is doing so for a purpose. He's seeking to teach them something. He's seeking to teach them about himself. He's seeking to teach them that he is the king of kings, that he's the Lord of lords, that he is a God who dwells in the splendor of glory. He's seeking to illustrate the value and and the beauty of his being to them. The tabernacle shows us the glory of God in its very construction. That's the first thing I want us to see. And maybe you are more convinced of this than of my second point that I mentioned earlier, which, of course, is the orientation of the tabernacle. You see, we see that the tabernacle is constructed of these precious materials in this gradation, the way it is, for the purpose of reflecting God's glory. But the next thing we see in the tabernacle is how the tabernacle doesn't reflect God's glory, but how it reflects man's sinfulness. Now, now follow with me here for a moment. You'll note that as we read through the chapter we encounter several instances where the position of the tabernacle or the position of the furniture in the tabernacle are described in ways that might seem odd to us. Yahweh doesn't tell the people of Israel to to put the lampstand on the left and the table on the right. No, no, he doesn't do that. He tells them to put the the light, the lampstand, in the south. Then he tells them to put the table on the north. You notice that, for instance, in verse 22... That the rear of the tabernacle is meant to be facing westward. And you may be wondering for a second, well, why is God so concerned 
with the direction which the tabernacle faces. Why would that matter? How could that possibly have anything to communicate to us? I think it's very important for us to consider it, though, for a moment. You note that if the tabernacle is facing westward, then what is at the most westward part of the tabernacle? It's the rear of the tabernacle, as we see there in verse 22, and again later in the chapter. Now that means that if you're entering into the tabernacle, the most westerly part of the tabernacle is the place where God dwells. And you'll note that the table and the lampstand are placed on opposite sides of, of the complex or of the tent. So whenever you walk in to the tent, you see straight west the Holy of Holies. And you see on either side of yourself the, the bread or the, uh, the table for the showbread and everything, and then the lights on the other side. And you enter then, obviously, from the east. Again, you may be thinking that I've lost my marbles at this point. I promise you I'm going somewhere with this. And it may seem very, very odd that Yahweh would care about which direction the tabernacle is pointed. But if you think it's odd, I want you to cast your mind back for just a minute to Genesis chapter 3. So if you, if you would, think for a moment about what takes place there in the garden. Of course, we know famously, importantly, that Adam fell... And then God does what? God chases him out of the garden, as it were. He kicks him out of his presence. He takes away from him the opportunity to eat of the tree of life, we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. It tells us this, that therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, though, says this, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Again, you maybe think I've lost my marbles at this point, but think about what's taking place there. When man is chased out of the presence of God, he's chased to the east. And God puts a guard, as it were, on the door of Eden in the east. But think about what's taking place. When you come into the tabernacle, you come from the east. More remarkably, when you enter into the tabernacle and you come into the holy place and you look, as it were, across that room, you find yourself staring at a veil. What's on the veil? It's a cherubim. There's only two places in the Pentateuch, friends, where a cherubim is mentioned, actually. It's in Genesis chapter 3, when God puts the cherubim to keep man out of the Garden of Eden. And it's here, whenever God illustrates, or it gives the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. Think about what the tabernacle's orientation communicates to us then. Think about yourself for a moment. Imagine that you're a priest in Israel. And you've been called to enter in to the holy place to minister. And you walk in that first veil. And you find yourself there in the holy place looking at the cherubim. 
and you are immediately confronted with the reality of Genesis chapter 3. You are immediately confronted with your sinfulness. You're immediately confronted with the greatest problem of humanity. And that is that right across that room is the presence of Almighty God. But between you and Him stands a barrier. Friends, that's profound. That's profound. You see, the tabernacle is not arbitrary in any way. Everything about it is meant to communicate something. Here here we have the sinfulness of man illustrated, no doubt, in contrast to the glory of God. We know that this royal, this divine figure dwells right on the other side. Right on the other side of this veil, it's just a piece of cloth that's dividing you and him. And yet on that piece of cloth is a reminder in that image of a cherubim that God has cast you out of his presence because of your sinfulness. There is a reminder staring you in the face that in Adam you are a sinner. And you are separated from your God. You're separated from your God. It must have been a stark reality to minister in that context and to come into that room and to see that cherubim and to be confronted again and again with your separation from Yahweh. So it teaches us the sinfulness of man. But it teaches us more than that, thanks be to God. It teaches us particularly in its design, that God desires to enter into fellowship with man once again. But I want us to note before we move on to that, again, the precision of the tabernacle. You know, when I first read this chapter, I was thinking to myself a few weeks ago, uh, none of you probably know this, but I was supposed to preach, and because I was taking my ordination exams, I had asked Pastor Holson, Pastor Aachen if they could fill in and take the slots that I would normally be preaching. And uh, the day I was talking to Pastor Aachen about that, I was, I was getting out of a preaching engagement here, and I think the text was about laws concerning slaves or something to that regard, you know, and I, and I thought to myself... Well, I've dodged a bullet there, maybe. Pastor Aachen can do that. And then I turned to this chapter and I thought, initially, what in the world am I going to say about it? Because at first glance, it really does come off as arbitrary. You you get the sense that God is just giving these instructions and, and there's not really any rhyme or reason to them. But as you begin to consider the finer details of the chapter, what you begin to realize is that nothing God does here is arbitrary. Every single aspect of this chapter is carefully crafted and purposely given in all of its precision to communicate something about God and something about man. And friends, I think that that's something that we should meditate upon. God has given us here in great precision these instructions, but he hasn't given it to us for no reason. God is extremely personal, and extremely purposeful rather in the giving of these instructions. And that's significant. I was reminded as I was considering this, a famous exchange that took place between a Puritan minister and an Anglican clergyman. Many of you have probably heard this. His name was Richard Rogers. 
And he was riding, apparently, with a friend of his who was a, a, a non-Puritan Anglican minister in the 17th century. And, and in the course of their ride, this Anglican minister turns to Richard Rogers and he, and he asks him, why are you so precise in your living and in your doctrine? Well, what's the problem with you Puritans, really? You're a little uptight. And Richard Rogers' response to him has come down to us because it is remarkable and it is profound. Richard Rogers turned back to this man and he said to him, well, I I seek to be precise because I serve a precise God. He served a precise God. And I think it's important for us to realize that we serve a precise God, but we serve a precise God who is precise for a purpose. He doesn't tell us to do things because he just feels like it. He tells us to do things because it's for our own good and for his glory. You see, we could think to ourselves, well, you could supplement any variety of things in the building of the tabernacle. Perhaps you use bronze instead of gold in one of these clasps. But you see, to do so would be to undermine the purposes of God. Because every single aspect of the construction of this tabernacle is meant purposefully to point to who God is and to confront us in the case of the cherubim, for instance, with our own sinfulness in the face of this glory. And I think that we can draw a principle from that, really, don't we? You see, you see, God calls us to do many things, which we may not really understand why he's calling us to do them at the time, but, but he never calls us to do anything that's not purposeful. You see, the Lord knows best. And even when it doesn't appear to be the case, he has a plan and he has a purpose. You see, somebody might come into our congregation and they might think, well, why do you have this kind of interesting lecture as the the centerpiece of your worship service. Couldn't you do something more interesting? Couldn't you replace it, for instance, with a skit? Couldn't you just watch an episode of The Chosen or something? What, What You could find something that would be more appealing to people, that would be more effective. Now, I want you to see, friends, that that is a total misunderstanding of the character of God. You see, it may seem arbitrary. It may even seem, as Paul refers to preaching, as as foolishness. And yet God has ordained it for a particular reason and for a particular purpose. And when we really understand that, we understand that nothing God does is arbitrary. It's all purposeful. It's all carefully constructed to teach us about himself, to show forth his glory, and to show forth his grace. That's what I want us to think about as we move then to our next point here, our final point, as we consider the actual design of the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle is a fascinating building. It's a fascinating building for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons why it's so fascinating is because the tabernacle is pretty clearly meant to replicate something. It's actually clearly meant to replicate a couple of things. Uh, We've already drawn out that the tabernacle clearly has lots of echoes, if you will, of Exodus. I mean, rather, not echoes of Exodus, but but echoes of Eden. We see them in a number of places. For instance, the cherubim and the orientation of the tabernacle, which we've just drawn out. 
But the tabernacle also replicates other mountains, if you will, in the history of God's people. I think about for a second the structure of the tabernacle compared with the structure of Mount Sinai. If you consider it for a moment, again, revisit those three layers of the tabernacle. You can think, for instance, of the bottom of the mountain or of the outer courts of the tabernacle. And it's that area that the people are able to come into. They're able to sacrifice to God. They're able to be there. Not just the priest, but the people. And, of course, that corresponds with the the ground around the mountain of Mount Sinai where the people are able to go and make sacrifices to the Lord. But if you go up one layer, right, it becomes more exclusive. The mountain is not to be transgressed by the people of Israel. The holy place is not to be transgressed by the people of Israel. They can't enter it. Only the priest can come into that particular portion of the tabernacle, which of course corresponds into the middle part of the mountain. And then of course most acutely we see the Holy of Holies, the place where like the top of Mount Sinai, God's presence dwells in a tangible and visible way. And who's able to ascend to the top of Mount Sinai? Well, only Moses. Only Moses, only one person, the mediator, if you will, for all the people, is able to go up there and to interact with God. And such is the same in the tabernacle. The only person who's able to come into the Holy Holies in the tabernacle is the high priest. The tabernacle is meant to mimic the mountain. Indeed, some people have argued, I think this is rather catchy, that it's a mobile mountain. It's a mobile Mount Sinai. It's a way for the people of God to take Mount Sinai with them when they go. To take the presence of God with them when they go. But, but the tabernacle doesn't just mimic Eden. And it doesn't just mimic Mount Sinai. Remarkably, and most importantly, the tabernacle mimics heaven. I don't know if you've thought about this or not. If you cast your minds forward to Hebrews chapter 9, you'll find there a remarkable text. You'll find there in chapter 9 that the author of Hebrews very clearly draws a parallel between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle, if you will. Uh, We see, for instance, uh, in uh, verse 1, Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It was called the holy place. It goes on to describe all the various aspects of the tabernacle. And it goes on to make it clear, particularly as we get down to verse 11 and following, that all of these aspects of the tabernacle were meant to point us forward to the heavenly tabernacle. They weren't just meant to point us forward to the temple and back to Eden, but they were meant to point us upwards. Upwards 
to the heavenly temple of the Lord, the place where God dwells in his presence, surrounded, as it were, by the cherubim. Think about the cherubim who were embroidered on the walls of the tabernacle. Think about Isaiah chapter 6, where we see the angels around the throne room of the Lord crying out, holy, holy, holy. The tabernacle is meant to replicate heaven. It's meant to replicate heaven. And as it does so, it points out to us, I think, the imperfections of the earthly tabernacle, yes, but the imperfections of all those previous iterations of the tabernacle. It points us to the reality that Adam is kicked out of the presence of God in Eden and he can't return. It points us to the reality that while in God's grace, he allows Moses to come up and to be in his presence on top, of, on top of Mount Sinai. All of the people have to stay at the bottom. It points us to the reality that even when the tabernacle was erected and the temple later and the high priest is able to go in just once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the people, they are all outside and God is still separated from them. The people are never brought into the presence of God in this most pure way. And it points to the need that we have. The need that we have for another Adam who won't fail and be kicked out of the presence of God. It points out our need for a greater Moses who will not only be able to ascend the mountain by himself, but but who will be able to bring us with him. It points us to the need for a greater high priest who who not only is able to enter in once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people, but who's who's able to enter into the, the presence of God and to make that final perfect atonement for the people. So that not only are they able to have this uh, this, this, this boundary, this, this uh, somewhat tangible relationship to God, but they're able to have this full enjoyment of the communion and the fellowship that mankind was meant to have with God. It points us to the need that we have for Jesus. That's what I want us to see. Particularly as we consider uh, verse uh, 31 and following, as we see that veil there. We've already spoken about it as we talked about how it would be the thing that the priest saw as he entered into the holy place and looked across and saw there that tangible reminder of his sinfulness and God's holiness. But of course the glorious news about that veil is that as we read this morning, when the Lord Jesus Christ died, it was torn in two. And think about what we heard this morning from Luke chapter 23, verse 45. That as Jesus died upon the cross of Calvary, that barrier that had existed, not only from the institution of the tabernacle, but all the way back in Genesis 3 as the cherubim stood and blocked mankind from coming into the presence of God, that barrier is split in two. The barrier is removed so that man can again come into the presence of God. That's what the tabernacle is pointing us to, friends. 
all of what we see constructed here as we we see the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man. But as we put it all together and we look at the design of the tabernacle, we realize that what God is doing here is he's setting the stage of salvation before us. He's preparing the way for us to understand the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here in the building of the tabernacle is nothing short of the architecture of our salvation. It's the remedy to the problem of humanity. It's the solution to the separation of sinful man and holy God. That's what we're meant to take away from a passage like this, friends. That's the payoff to me and you. Because in the tabernacle, in its construction, we see the heart of God towards sinners. And we see an arrow pointing us forward to the work of the Savior. And friends, I don't think there's any more appropriate text for Easter Sunday than than Exodus chapter 26, when we read it in that light. When we see what it's seeking to communicate to us in this way. When we see how it points us to Jesus and to his grace, his love, his life, his death, his breaking down the dividing wall that separated us from the presence of our God. And his restoring to us that fundamental aspect of human existence, the need to commune with God, who allows us then to glorify and enjoy him. This is good news, friends. This is good news from Exodus chapter 26. We draw near, as the book of Hebrews tells us, boldly, confidently, we draw near in the Lord Jesus Christ to our God. And we do so, again, as the book of Hebrews tells us, with a clean conscience with hearts that have been sprinkled clean by his work, with hearts that are, uh, or consciences that are clean before our Lord because of the atoning work that he has done for us as he rips down this dividing veil. Friends, it's my hope for us all this evening that as we leave this place and as we go about our business throughout this week, that we will go conscious of the gospel that the Lord is preaching to us from the construction of the tabernacle. That we would go forth taking heart and seeking to live in the truths that we see communicated to us here. Seeking to take advantage of the communion and the fellowship that the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased for us, seeking to cultivate more deeply fellowship with our God that has been given to us as a gift in Him. Let us do that, and let us, as we do that, do so for the glory of our God and for the good of His people. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You. We thank you and we praise you for texts like Exodus chapter 26. We thank you, O Lord, that even in these difficult texts, these texts which do not immediately seem to us to be texts which speak directly to us, even there, Father, we see in the shadow lands of the Old Testament, though it may be, 
the grace that you have towards your people. We thank you, O Lord, for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great heavenly high priest. And we pray this evening, O Lord, that you would grow us in the grace and in the knowledge of him, that you, O Lord, would make us more faithful servants of him, more faithful stewards of the gifts that you've given us in him, and that you would make us, O Lord, more earnest to live in light of the glorious salvation which you have wrought as you have restored us in union with him in fellowship with you. We pray it in the name of our Savior. Amen.